All right. Welcome back to Drummer Nation Live. I'm going to give this a second to get rolling and show up on our platforms. But I've dispensed with some of the usual introductory stuff in honor of my wonderful guest, one of the most popular people in the drum industry, one of the most well-known, friend to all, not a negative word about him, uh, my buddy, John DeChristopher. Welcome, John. How are you? Uh, well, thank you so much for that intro, Michael. I'm, I'm doing really great. Thank you. How, how are you doing? Well, I'll get us out of that box. <laughs> I'm fine. <laughs> I'm good. I'm good. So where are you? I am in my drum room uh, at my house in uh, Cohasset, Massachusetts. It's a beautiful late summer day here. Just mm-hmm. having my lunch outside on the, on the deck. Yeah. It's, so, yeah. That's and I was just before we got together, I was playing for about an hour, hour and a half. So that was cool. It's real pretty here, too. I just came back from camping, so I'm a little rusty here with my switching, so I'm trying to minimize it. (laughs) But you and I have a lot in common. I mean, first of all, for anybody who doesn't know, John DeChristopher was the artist relations guy at Zildjian for how many years? 24 years, just shy of it, you know, a couple months shy of 24 years. Right. And mentored with the great Lenny DiMuzio, would you say? Absolutely. Oh, absolutely, yes. And Lenny said... Lenny's kind of credited with starting the whole artist relations thing many years ago. Lenny, Lenny set the bar high, you know, and, uh, you know, we, we sort of joke about, you know, which bar we're talking about, but I'm talking about, you know, <laughs> not the bar where you and I used to meet at basic, but, um, but the bar, you know, coming into Zildjian, I'll just say, you know, I knew Lenny for many years before I, I started working there. So I had the greatest respect and love for him and, uh, you know, I was lucky to work there for, you know, of the 24 years that I worked there, 14 were with Lenny and Armin Zildjian. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Armin sadly passed at the end of 2002, and Lenny moved on at the beginning of 2003. And, uh, but it was a, a magical time to be around those guys. And Absolutely. Uh, you know, Len- yeah, Lenny was a, a, definitely a friend and a mentor. Well, to me as well, I want to talk some about all the, not only the artists you know and interacted with, but all the industry people too, because there's like two sides of that. But first, let's talk a little bit about artist relations. Uh, it exploded over the, in the 70s and 80s and maybe even in the 90s. What do you think, how does it stand now? What do you think artists, do you think that artist relations programs are a little bloated sometimes? Well, I, yeah, I mean, I, my sense, Michael, is that I've been gone now close to 10 years. And I think in that time, it seems uh, companies have, have uh, you know, made more of an effort to sort of trim. I, mean, I hate to say trim the fat, but just to streamline it. That's probably a better way of saying it. Um, certainly, you know, I'll admit that when I was there, it was a different time. Right. And, you know, the business was different. Um, you know, I, I, I dare say it was a more robust business certainly at a point, um, you know, the business that we were doing warranted having, I had a large staff of people that work for me and we needed that many people to cover the different offices in Los Angeles and London and, um, you know, clinic tours and things that we were doing that, uh, warranted having a staff of myself and some managers that work for me and some other people in the offices. So, but to your point, it's, it's, it became, I think, as things changed in the industry, that part of the business changed. And I've seen it kind of shrink a little bit. I think companies are maybe a little less liberal than they used to be with 
with product um, and, you know, that sort of thing. I mean, I've, I've sort of heard that from, from artists and, um, and, and it's, it, it's the way it goes, as you know, things change. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've been out seven years, I guess now as well. Yeah. A lot of things in the industry have changed. Um, one of the things when it comes to endorsing artists, there's kind of a dichotomy there in that some of the best drummers in the world play to very small audiences. You know, if yeah. you're a jazz musician and you've got 80 people in a room and they're all going crazy, that's a wonderful full room packed house. But there may only be four drummers in the room. On the other hand, you have artists out there who play stadiums, sheds, giant venues, and they perform in front of all kinds of tens of thousands of people a night, but they may not have the same cred as some of the artists that don't have a lot of exposure. So you kind of have to balance those two, don't you? You really do. You put it really well. I mean, that was, and that was always a challenge for me was, you know, looking at the exact situation that you said, you know, you go into a, a local club here in Boston, the regatta bar and, um, you know, and I would say that like on, on certain nights when if it were Brian Blade playing or or Bill Stewart or Dave Weckl or Dennis Chambers, any of the real, you know, influencers, you'd have a room full of Berkeley drummers at the gig. Mm-hmm. And so you you had your target audience in the room and it was definitely a captive audience when it came to that. But it, like, as you say, it might only be 100 people. Uh, but I always felt that those drummers were so valuable because they're speaking to that, you know, high end in the case of Zildjian, you know, the, the K Zildjian top of the line symbol market that, that we'd be trying to reach. And, and those were the drummers that could best expose those products, you know, best promote those products. So um, to me, it was, it was well worth it having drummers of that ilk, you know? Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's my point. I saw part of your uh, interview from a while back with Don Lombardi yesterday, and he was talking about a time in Buddy's life, Buddy Rich, when uh, he was one of those guys, arguably maybe the greatest drummer who ever lived, depending on who you're talking to, certainly top of the top of the top. And there were some companies that weren't really interested at the time because he played small rooms at a time when stadiums were exploding. I know, I know. You know, I remember, thank you for mentioning that, you know, we did that in, in June of 2021, and I reposted it just in light of this, you know, this mm-hmm. exciting news in the industry. But um, I remember Don telling me this when I worked for him. I worked for him before Zildjian for, for a few years. And and uh, he had told me that story before. And uh, I found it sort of fascinating and shocking at the same time that Buddy was still Buddy. You know, I mean, Buddy's been gone, rest his soul, for 35 years. And he may not be as influential as he was in the 70s and maybe the 80s, but he's still, I think, like John Bonham, there's this, this you know, his legacy carries on so to speak you know buddy lives on in youtube and and you Mm -hmm. you see the phenomenal musician that he was you know um so anyway i yeah to to your point i found that not surprising but at the same time that was kind of the direction that the business was going in at that time i was working retail in the 80s when the japanese companies were really coming on strong and and you know they were very smart the way they targeted a lot of you know, young up and coming rock drummers, um, you know, Simon Phillips, for example, was a, you know, a young drummer, maybe not so much up and coming, but he was one of the early faces of, of Tama drums, you know, in the late seventies. 
and you know he was he was a Stuart Copeland you know in the early 80s and these guys went on to become hugely influential at that time and sold you know I hope I can say it a shit ton of drums yeah during that time shit ton of records too shit ton of records yeah yeah uh I, you know I I re, you know I remember those days too like seeing the American companies just you know Slingerland and Rogers especially just kind of disappear you know Ludwig and Gretsch were able to sort of hang in there by the skin of their teeth but you had Tama and and Yamaha and Pearl just really come in and you know at the they kind of saw all the openings and all the weaknesses that had been there from the American drum companies and mm -hmm. and uh, and seized those opportunities well they were also part of uh, giant corporations too true yeah. One sure. of the things that surprised me when I got into the industry is how small these companies really are. I mean, Zildjian, to their credit, is the big dog and has been all through this while the drum companies went through phases. But um, there are grocery stores that gross a million a week. Right. Oh, I know. I know. Yeah. <laughs> and know. that's probably more than any of the drum or cymbal companies do. And that's a single grocery store. So yeah, that's no yeah. slight on those companies. That's just saying that this is a very small industry. Exactly. And, you know, I used to, you know, people, I think you and I can relate to this, where there's this assumption that, the, you know, the, the drum industry is, you know, $100 billion or 50, you know, it's, it's a much smaller number than what people think. And I think with that, they think a company like Zildjian is, you know, uh, you know, a quarter of a billion dollars and DW is that same amount. And, you know, it, it, there's this whole sort of warped kind of, uh, you know, view of how, how big the industry really is or really how small it is. And, and, uh, well, they're on TV, they're on major stages, they're in movies, they, you know, it's part of the fabric of all of our lives is music. Yeah. So we tend to think of it as a lot larger than it really is. True. <clears throat> That's true. And and I, I used to have conversations with people that, you know, kind of assumed that we uh, paid artists hundreds of thousands of dollars. And uh, and you probably had these conversations, too, you know, when you had Bosphorus, where, you know, people assume that uh, Jeff Hamilton or Stanton Moore or any one of your top guys was getting, you know, a five or six figure uh, salary or, or compensation. And let's dispel that myth right now. Yeah. Let's, let's dispel that myth. Um, I remember I was at a clinic with one of our artists and the question came up from a kid was, uh, do you just get free stuff or is there money too? <laughs> and you know, your first yeah. response is, and that's when I shot him, your honor, but you, re you really can't blame the guy. Cause that's, that's his perception. That's what, that's what yeah. he thinks is a, uh, uh, an adequate quite he wasn't trying to be disrespectful or, or flippant no no <laughs> it's like that old it's like that old joke you know like do you get free free you know do you get free just free stuff or money too it's like that old when did you stop beating your wife question you know there's like <laughs> there's no right answer in there um, you can't win that one no you can't win that one so yeah. but just, I, yeah i i think i was gonna say I've, I've heard you do interviews and i've heard you talk about this and you've you know, always tried to, to set people straight as I have. And, and, uh, and hopefully we're setting people straight right now on that. I hope so. Especially now that there's some contraction and consolidation in the industry, it's probably, uh, the endorsement thing is sort of waning. I think, let me ask you another question. Now that sure. the, uh, clinics have sort of 
I won't say come and gone, but they're not as popular as they used to be. Uh, and social media is taking off. I think it's just a matter of time before part of an artist contract with an endorsing uh, deal is to create social media about them and that company or some kind of, could be almost anything. Sure, but that yeah. the companies are going to start to look for their social media content to be coming from the artists they sign as well as the performances. You know, and I, I don't know, it may already be that. I I, mm-hmm. I can't speak for any companies that I, and I can't say that I know that, but I, well, I, I can't think it's a good point. Yeah. 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 I'm just, that's a guess on my part. I'm out of it. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about some of the great artists you were fortunate to work with. We mentioned Buddy Rich. Louis Belson, I'm going to throw out some of the older jazz cats, Max Roach. Any comments on those kind of guys? I, I didn't get to work with Buddy um, and, and that he passed away. I was working for DW at that time when he okay. died in 1987. But I knew Louis Belson really well. I was very mm-hmm. close with Louis. And uh, I, I would just echo what the, the entire rest of the world says about Louis, which, you know, besides being the incredible drummer. Yeah, I know what you're going to say, was. peach of a gentleman. Oh, my God. I mean, just the greatest. We were just talking about him, my son and I, recently. And a, a quick story, when my son Please. was... Yeah, he was... So this would be 1993. Louis did a drum clinic at Desenzo's Drum Shop here in, in Boston, Quincy, Massachusetts. And my son at the time would have been six years old, and it was a Sunday night. And I would have my kids on the weekends, and I, I kept them late that particular Sunday because I wanted my son and my daughter to see Louis Belson meet Louis. So... I'd spoken with Louie on the phone that day and I said, I'll see you at the clinic. You know, I'll get there at whatever time. So anyway, my son drew this picture. Um, he was into drawing at the time. It's just funny now because his seven-year-old daughter, my granddaughter Fiona does the same thing, but, and my grandson Dylan. But anyway, so he drew this picture and came up on stage and gave the picture to Louie. There's a YouTube of it. And Louie's saying, this is John's son. And he made this picture for me. And, uh, and, and so that was beautiful in and of itself. For years after that, Michael, I'd be on the phone with Louie and he'd say, you know, John, you remember his voice. And, you know, John, I still have your son. How's your son doing? How's your boy? And I'd say, he's great, Louie. He's great. You know, he's he's 12 now, you know, or something. He'd say, well, tell him I said hello and tell him I still have that picture. I keep it with me whenever I travel. One time at the Modern Drummer Festival, I had to go up to his room for a minute. Um, I think it was before the banquet and I had to go up and bring something to him pulls it out of his suitcase and shows it to me. Um, I wanted to cry. I mean, he was just that kind of guy. Um, amazing. Max Roach, I, I, I got to know a little bit toward the end of Max's life, and that was just a thrill to just um, be in his presence. And, and uh, you know, he had this way about him, this, this just the same feeling you get from, like, Roy Haynes, this just cool, it's Max Roach, just soak mm-hmm. it all in and, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. How about a few of the other anyway. classic jazz players I know? You knew Elvin? Yeah, yeah. Same with Elvin. I, I was fortunate to to know Elvin for like the last, you know, really well for like the last 10 years of his life and, and spend time in his apartment in New York. And, um, you know, these are these are things that, you know, as a kid, you'd never even imagine possible. Right. Um, I'd see these guys in the cover of magazines and would have never imagined that I'd you know, that I'd know them, uh, meet them, let alone know them and be their friend. And uh, mm-hmm. just an amazing, 
So I'm, I'm throwing out first names kind of guys here. Tony. <laughs> Tony. Yeah. Yeah. Tony. Tony was the first uh, Zildjian artist drumstick that we made. Uh, artist series drumstick. I remember in that. 1990. You remember that? And that was that I'd met Tony in 1982 when I was working at Willis of Music and he did a drum clinic there. He didn't really remember that all those years later, but, um, but when I, when I got to know Tony around 1989, 1990, we became very close friends. I, I traveled on his one and only clinic tour in the fall of 96, just a few months before he passed away. And uh, we had a blast, you know, for two weeks traveling the country. And he was just a, you know, just a, a blast to be around and just to see him play every night. And uh, yeah. yeah, I have some experiences like that with other artists and they're just, you just have to pinch yourself sometimes, right? You just can't yeah. believe that you're that lucky to be there and part of that. That's that's how I always felt. Now, you always also had, I know you were tight with rock and roll royalty. Did you know and work with Ringo at all? Yes, uh, I worked with Ringo quite a bit. Um, I, I don't know Ringo as well as I knew Charlie. And that just, we just, Charlie and I just happened to have this relationship where he just, uh, you know, he liked me and we, really had this much tighter connection but Ringo um you know Ringo's Ringo and I used to always say he's a Beatle so if I go to if I go see him play and he only has three minutes to say hello I'm you know that's okay with me because he's Ringo but uh but I you know I I have some great memories of of him um joking around at gigs I I, I brought him some symbols one time this would have been maybe the late nineties, his drum tech, Jeff Chonis asked me to bring him a, a, a different ride symbol. He was looking for something with a little bit more stick sound than what he'd been using, mm -hmm. but still with a warm sound. And I think we had just come up with the, the K-Con uh, big band symbol. And I, I remember picking one up and going, well, I think, you know, I think this might work. Okay. And so I brought it to him and he ended up using it for a while, but I brought it to him and it was one of the few times that we were together behind his drums before the gig. And he actually put it up to try it. And he's playing it and I'm just standing back. This is before Greg was in the band. Um, so I'm just sort of standing back with Jeff Chonis and I'm watching him and he's, he's, you know, got this look in his face. He's kind of like, you know, trying it and listening to it, playing the bell a little bit. And he turned to me and he said, you know, uh, I used to have some really nice paste symbols. Those were really nice. <laughs> and he's, you know, he was just winding me up. He was just, yeah, right. you know, just wanted to just take the piss out of the Zildjian guy that he, used to play, you know, old Peisty 602s. So I turned around and I said, I, Ringo, I've heard that. What what were they and when? Like, what records? And he, you know, he, he didn't expect that answer. He went like, oh, God, John, I don't, I don't remember, you know, or something He like doesn't that. remember. You know Gary Astridge, who's one of, uh, oh, yeah. he's kind of a new guy on the scene who's, he got his Ringo's Beatles kits uh, and he's Ringo's curator. And he's the guy Ringo asks, you know, yes. when I did this tour, what Tom Tom did I have there? And, you know, and, and he knows he's got all that, but yeah, he's a great guy too. Um, yeah, great. Yeah, he's, he's, and Charlie I, just, Watts, Keltner. I yeah, mean, you gotta yeah. be pinching yourself with those guys, man. They're, you know, there are a handful of drummers in the world in that league. And there you were interacting with them on a normal day to day basis. Now, one question is people may not realize, but you pick out symbols for these guys a lot, right? I did. Yeah. In my, in my, certainly in my early years at Zildjian, um, you know, it was a, it was just a handful of us. I say a handful, but it was a, a small staff in those days. I mean, it was Lenny, myself, Colin mm -hmm. Schofield. It was before mm -hmm. 
Um, John King, who later came to work in, in uh, education, had been he was working in the factory for years, and we sort of brought him up into into the marketing team. But um, but you know, I would go down, I'd get a phone call from Peter or or you know any any one of the guys, and I'd go down and you know pick a symbol best best I could sort of on what I was hearing and what they were looking for. And, and it was part of the job, you know, I never really, I never really sort of thought that much about it. And until years later, when I started seeing other people saying, I, I've picked symbols for this guy. Oh, okay. Well, that's, that's what we used to do. You know? <laughs> yeah. I always, that was my, one of my favorite parts of that when I had a symbol company yeah. was, was uh, getting into the artist head, man, you know, like there's a lot of symbols out there and you're going to pick the ones that make them, make them delight, you know, make them squeal yeah. go, wow, that's just what I was looking for. That always felt great to me. And, and I, I was privileged to be able to do that, but you have to have, well, I, I, you, you do. And I'll tell you one quick story. And, and I remember Earl Palmer early on when I started working there and I, I think I'd met him maybe one time at the NAMM show, maybe he had my card or something. And, uh, you know, Lenny was still there and Lenny was still active and involved, but, you know, kind of moving more toward education at that point. But I, I got a phone call from Earl looking for just sort of a straight up a medium ride. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I remember going down and, and, and kind of feeling a little bit, not nervous, but like, okay, shit, this is Earl Palmer, man. You know, I, this is, I got to make this count, you know? And, and I remember sending it to him and him calling me and just, he was another guy that was just the, the most amazing person on the planet. I mean, besides being the legendary drummer, you know, recording artist that he was, but he called and he was thanking me. And then I feel like in a modern drummer uh, interview sometime after that, he, he mentioned it in there, which I, which blew my mind, you know, mm-hmm. he said, I've got this beautiful symbol that, you know, John DeChristopher picked out for me. And I thought, wow, man, Earl Palmer mentioned my I, name. I know, I've turned <laughs> up in some thank yous in albums before and I was just yeah. blown away by that. Or I used to like the trade shows because you know, everybody sees everything, right? So you look around your booth and it's like, there's Peter Erskine and Lenny White and, and, uh, you know, could be anybody. There's six or seven of them. Jim Keltner's there. And isn't that so-and-so? And didn't he play on this? And they're all in front of yeah. your booth listing assembles, you know? And, and it was such a friendly camaraderie, not only between the artists, but the guy, I mean, you and I were friends and, Absolutely. uh, competitors, yeah. but I mean, I knew the people at Peisty at Sabian at, um, uh, Meinl, uh, um, the, Turkish companies. And that was a big part of my life. I think it was for you too, right? Absolutely was. I, I, I loved working, working with my friends in the industry. And, mm-hmm. you know, for example, you know, you mentioned the, the friendly competitor aspect, you and I, of course, and, and uh, you know, the, the Sabian, the Zildjian Sabian thing was a little different because of just the, the family element. But, right. but again, I knew, I knew um, Andy Zildjian before I worked for Zildjian. I met Andy when I worked for DW and we were friends. And mm-hmm. I later met Billy Zildjian when he was working for the company and, uh, and Bob. And so, you know, I, it, I always tried to keep a level of, of uh, friendship and respect Although there were, you know, there were times when we all had to sort of get in each other's face about things. But every now and then you fire a shot over the other one's bow. But that's business. That's business. It's not personal. That's right. Exactly. And and I was just going to mention Rich Mangiacaro, who who was still one of my my best pals. And he, you know, was the Peisty artist director for years. And I remember we'd we'd sometimes walk the show together and and people would see us and go, whoa, what are you guys doing (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it was like we're, we're, you know, we've known each other for 
a thousand years we're just we're just shooting the shit you know I, I was in the aisle once secrets. I was in the aisle once and then talking to Craigie and and um, yeah. um, Brock comes by from Remo and he's like there you go there you go see <laughs> Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and one time I was at, at at Messe in Germany, and this guy comes up and he's talking symbols, and I realized he really knows what he's talking about. You know, some people really know their shit. You know what yeah. I'm talking about. And I have this wonderful conversation with him. I said, "Well, that's great talking to you, Michael. You really know a lot. What's your last name?" And he says, "Peisty." <laughs> So, well, he does know. He does know. Shit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He got it honest. Uh, uh, some of the other, uh, like you also knew and worked with a lot of what you might call the present day legends. Uh, Vinny. These are one name guys too. Peter, yeah. uh, Simon Phillips, Greg Bissonette, Dennis Chambers. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. Yeah. And, and, and I'm going at something with this. Where I'm going at is when you left Zildjian, just like when I left my thing, um, I realized that these were some of my favorite people in the world. And I knew them very personally. I knew their families. I knew their children, their wives, and sometimes their parents. And because I had left that part of the industry, I didn't want to leave that part of my life behind. These people mean a lot to me. So that's kind of why I started my little Drummer Nation show thing. And I got a feeling that's got something to do with your show. Yeah, it does. And and uh, I, I totally get what you're saying. And I, I'll just say that, you know, add to what you said, that uh, that was definitely a concern when I left Zildjian. And I'll be honest with you, when I it's it's coming up to 10 years that I actually left the company. I, I you know, gave my notice um, in October of 2012 and then the early part of October. And they asked me to not make any announcement for a couple of weeks just to sort of figure out what we were going to do. So when it when it was announced at the end of the month, um, you know, I, I uh, my it's going to sound crazy and maybe full of myself, but my first feeling or, or reservation about it was um, I don't, I don't want to let these guys down, like the guys that are used to dealing with me. And there were certainly people there behind me that they, that they could work with and that they did end up working with. But, um, you know, but a guy like Steve Gadd or Peter or any number of the people that you mentioned were my regular contacts or I was their contact, I should say. And, um, mm -hmm. and I had it in my head that, you know, I just don't, I don't want them to feel that I'm leaving them in the lurches, which, which is looking back is kind of silly for me to think that I had any sort of that much influence on the whole thing. But to your point, um, 10 years later, every one of those people that you've mentioned, I'm still in regular contact with. I get, you know, Steve Smith, every, every couple of weeks will text me a picture of something maybe at his lake house. And he'll say, you know, he'll have like a vintage snare drum and he'll go, I'm just grooving here playing my old black beauty or something. And I thought of you or something because he knows I'm a vintage nut. Mm -hmm. um, Greg Bissonette will send me um, a little video clip of him and Ringo backstage before a gig. Mm -hmm. And he'd say, I thought you'd get it. Ringo says, hi, I thought you'd get a kick out of this. And it's him and Ringo like doing some little funny bit for, for 30 seconds. And, 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 and my point to all this, Michael is, 10 years later, I don't f even feel the least bit disconnected on top of doing my show. And that was another thing that I wanted to do during the pandemic was to was to bring everybody together and just try to make what was at that time a really negative situation, a positive situation. Let's let's not talk about that that part of it too much, but let's all 
let's all just, you know, share some memories and have some laughs and, and, um, you know, just, oh, just absolutely. Well, when the pandemic hit, I changed, I kept doing my interviews. Now, I don't know how many you've done, like 80, 90, something like that. Eventually, kind of, yeah. yeah, I've done a couple hundred and eventually kind of hit a wall. And, and the, the COVID thing yeah. came and I thought, I'm going to do a, a Zoom meeting on, I did it on Monday nights and to, to keep track of this community of friends. And also, I wanted it to be private because I thought, if I really want to talk to these guys all the time, these are people that the general public pays money to access. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you see what I'm yeah, saying? Yeah, and and so I, I had a couple of years there where on Monday night, you made a couple of them, um, people would drop in and they could, there was no time they had to get there. They didn't have to say they were coming, leave whenever they wanted. And there were about 50 or 60 drummers that floated through that. And I wasn't the only one doing that. There were some others like that. And it was kind of all supercharged by the pandemic. Right. Yep. I, I enjoy that. I wish I could have made more of those too. Um, you know, and they were, they were a blast to do those with you. And, and, uh, I think the, the problem I had was they were, I think you did them at eight o'clock Eastern well, time. And the thing is, whenever you did it, there were a lot of people who couldn't make it. So once it got going, <laughs> you just sort of, sorry, you just sort of kept that, that thing rolling. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, but, uh, and the other thing was, there was no recording. So it was just all, guys like guys hanging out at pace to get the bar right right and and yeah. i treasure that so uh the other thing i wanted to ask you about was um the old guard industry folks i'm going to mention some names here that i know you know and they were i found the old guard guys were and women were very helpful and encouraging to me and we're talking about remo belly vic firth roy burns the Colados. Don Lombardi, Jim Catalano, Joe Hibbs, Jim Chapin, Freddie Gruber. You know all these guys. All those guys. Yeah, I do. And gals. Yeah. And gals. And that was the heart of the industry, man. And, and It was. Uh, I talked to Phil Hood recently. He said, you know, he had Drum Magazine. And he said he went to the last NAMM show and he didn't know anybody. <laughs> it changes kinda, very you know, quickly, you know. I know. I I, uh, I I haven't been to an amp show now in a few years, and uh, yeah, and you know for for the obvious reasons. And mm-hmm. and I definitely I remember the last time, um, I I definitely saw more people that I didn't know than I did know. I mean, I I made a, made a point of seeing the people that I knew, and mm-hmm. um, but but there were definitely a lot of and that, and that's that's always going to happen. But I, I, you know, the way I it should be right moves on. Yeah, as hard as we all worked at those shows. Yeah, that's right. And you know, we we'd work hard at a at a NAMM show or at a PASIC convention. Uh, but the reward was hanging with all those people you just mentioned at night at the absolutely. bar. You know, absolutely. I, yeah. And I wouldn't trade that for Steve anything. Edelson to that list. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, exactly. Oh yeah, that's a short yeah, list. <laughs> There's a lot of great ones. Yeah, Johnny yeah. Craviato was a wonderful support for me yeah. and a great guy and, and uh yeah. there's plenty of them. These were just off the top of my head. Um, yeah. Any yeah. of them uh, more significant? Maybe one or two that that really were in your corner, or you really felt close to um, industry folks. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, you've definitely mentioned them, and I, I think you know we talked about Lenny. Um, I mentioned Armin Zildjian. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, all those. I, I worked. You know, I worked for Don Lombardi for three years, and that was a my second job in the industry, and I I learned so much working for him. And, and that really, I think, 
sort of put me on the map in the industry so that when I moved back to the East Coast at the end of 1988, and I came out to Winter Nam in 89, Zildjian approached me to work for them. I mean, they they knew who I was from, mm-hmm. um, you know, from being in the industry at that point for about four or five years. And, and uh, you know, and that, that made me a, more of a sort of a recognizable known commodity, you could say. Um, so, I, yeah, I mean, I, I think of... I think of all those people you mentioned and, uh, you know, a couple others, guys like uh, Sandy Feldstein and uh, you might have mentioned Lloyd McCausland. And, I didn't, but know, sure, he's another yeah, one, yes. Jim Catalano, I, you uh-huh. might have mentioned Jim, but, mm-hmm. but you know, these are all, Rick Drum, these are all the, the sort of guys, when I was coming up in my early 20s and, and the 80s, they were a few years older than me and they'd been in the industry a few years and I looked up to these guys and I remember guys like Rick Drum and guys like Jim Catalano um, being so uh, giving and, and, uh, and open to just, you know, I, it wasn't like I was kind of, you know, biting on their heels going, Hey guys, can you show me what to do? But, but, you know, we'd be hanging out somewhere and they'd be like, Hey, why don't you come along? We're going to go, going to go see this guy play tonight if you want to come hang. And, um, or just, you'd just be hanging at the bar, having a drink and you would just get into a conversation and realize that, you had a lot more in common than you realized. You mm-hmm. know, you might be a couple of years mm-hmm. younger, but you're listening but, uh, to the same drummers. Sometimes you realize your best thing is to just shut up and listen good. Oh, yeah. Yes. Because <laughs> <You know? laughs> there's so much great information and character and just going by you, by the giants of the industry. Um, yeah. I, I, I miss that. Um, so at some point you began in becoming involved with, let's call it, producing. Okay. And we can talk about what that means, but I know you did the mission from GAD. Several, those were like global tours, right? International tours, right? Exactly. And and Zildjian days, and um, things that were on video, and so you were executive producer of a lot of those things, right? Yes. Yeah. I my my first um, my first time doing that, really taking that bigger role, was the 2003 tribute to Steve GAD that we did, um, the American Drummers Achievement Awards, and it was a tribute to Steve and to Armin Zildjian and, and, you know, the guys from Hudson music, uh, recorded it and, and they were mm-hmm. producers with me, but it was, you know, my baby, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And it was a big deal. It was a huge deal. It was, uh, you know, it, it very say big. And you didn't have any real chops. You didn't have a lot of experience with that either. Right? No, I didn't. I didn't. I, uh, I was, yeah. Well, you nailed it, man. You stepped up. Now tell me what, what, what does a producer do? I'm saying, hey, I'm producing well, this. What what does that mean? I I was responsible. I shouldn't say responsible. I was the one that organized the band. Um, I should say bands that we had play um, between all the artists that came to support Steve and uh, and pay tribute. And that was the James Taylor band. It was getting the talent like uh, James Taylor himself and and Paul Simon. Um, managing the budget. There was a budget that I had to work with and adhere to and and uh, figure out how many tickets we had to sell to make it all worthwhile, you know, work out to pay everybody. Everybody did it for almost nothing, but we, we felt we had to pay the guys some sort of scale, something mm, sure. for their time and trouble, you know, and, and uh, coordinating the PR. We had a PR company um, coordinating, coordinating rehearsal schedules in LA. And uh, the drummers that we had paying tribute to Steve were Rick Murata and Vinnie Caliuta. 
And I'll just give you one quick example of, of, you know, I realized coming down maybe a month or two before the event that Vinny was still working with Sting and he was on tour with Sting and he was going to finish the, the day before the event or was it the day before maybe the rehearsal, but it was really close. He was going to be on a plane from London and arrive in Boston and then the plan was, and he'd come right to Berkeley and be there. I guess it was for the gig. It was the gig day. And that was a scary thought that if he missed the flight, if something happened, we'd have no Vinny. And he was a big part of this. So I contacted uh, a drummer by the name of Dave Desenzo. I'm sure you know Dave. Absolutely. He's done my and show. I, he's done your show. Okay. And I Go mentioned ahead. his dad earlier. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I said to Dave, I said, yeah, here's the situation. Um, Vinny's going to do this, but, if something were to happen, basically I asked him to, to be a, a sub standing by and Dave was, you know, at first sort of floored. And at the second, and like on the second point, he was like, thank you for thinking of me. And I won't let you down if you need me. And I knew he wouldn't, I knew he could mm-hmm. read the shit cold and just come in there and kill it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and sure enough, Vinny arrived on time. It was fine. It had his drum set up for him and it took like five minutes for him to get ready to go. And we, it all went, according to plan, but Dave was there mm-hmm. in the event that something happened and he would have, he would have pulled it off. You know, I, I was but that was, guy once I got called West side story is, is a pretty hard show, you know, in the Atlanta ballet or somebody was doing it in town. And oh, um, yeah. the drummer is a friend of mine said, well, dress rehearsal. I think I'm going to be a little late. You might, can you just learn the overture? And of course the overture is everything in the show, right? And it's hard shit. Yeah, yeah. So I said, well, okay. So I show up for the overture. I mean, I show up for the dress rehearsal and the guys in the band are, what are you doing here? It's well, he's going to be a little lady, maybe. So um, they bring down the high slides and he shows up. Okay, fine. I'm off the hook. Next night's opening night. Oh. Opening night, West Side Story. I haven't played a note with these people. And oh. the house lights come down, the conductor walks out, he gets on the podium, they put the light on him and he's about to raise his baton and the guy shows up. <laughs> I was like, oh, oh shit. Man. Thank you oh. very much. Yeah. <laughs> you know, your first thing is you're, yeah, you're scared to do, uh, uh, what? Sure, I'll do it. And then you really go, man, what did I get myself into? But, but oh. back to the producing thing, I didn't know what a producer yeah. was till I had to do it too. And, and it's really the guy who, or woman, we say guy, uh, who yeah. puts, the whole thing together, right? The money, yeah. the talent, yeah. the budget, the logistics, the food, the 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 location, the, everything. And and if anything goes wrong, it's on you. Exactly. I was going to say that. You, yeah, you get you know none of the credit <laughs> I, and all the blame. That's right. I used to love at 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 Nam. I loved turning in the rental car because I knew that was the last responsibility I had. <laughs> After yeah, that, yeah. the airline's going to get me home. That's on them. Yeah, you know exactly. Oh, that's well. I'll tell you a quick. So the, we did yeah, this event at Berkeley, and it and it came off perfectly. It was great. But what I remember too is in, in, is not being able to remember anything because, as you say, as the producer, I was standing side stage all night with you know with headphones and with my notes and basically calling and saying, okay, Will Lee, we need you now. And, mm-hmm. and uh, Vinny, we need you standing by and let's get this ready to go. And then we're going to bring out Louis Belson to talk. And, uh, you know, I, I, I watched it a couple of times and it's, um, I'm really uh, 
impressed or, or that's maybe not the right word, but um, honored that I was a big part of that. But it's funny watching it and going like, I, I kind of don't even really remember this. It just, mm-hmm. it just happened, went by so fast, you know? Mm-hmm. And then uh, five years later in 2008, we did a similar, we did a, a show to, to uh, pay tribute to Ginger Baker. And that was in London. And leading up to that, I was going to London uh, for the two years before that. Every couple of months, we'd go out and be scouting locations. We were talking to sponsors. I was talking to Charlie about uh, being honored as well, and Ringo, and and Mitch Mitchell. We were looking at trying to, you know, honor several people, and it just for a variety of reasons, it didn't all sort of pan out. But we did honor Ginger. And the night of the event, now leading up to it, we had Jack Bruce there. We had um, Simon Phillips. We had Tony Levin. We had Steve White. We had Keith Carlock. Um, Gary Husband was playing keyboards in the band. It was this phenomenal lineup of musicians. Tony Allen. Um, and <laughs> the day of the event, we'd finished sound check. I go back to the hotel and there's a knock on my door. And I thought it was Brad Baker bringing me a ticket for my wife. Brad had said something like, you know, I'll, I'll run a ticket up to your room for you in a little while for Kelly or something. And, yeah, I knew Brad. and I hear this, you know, Brad. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I hear this really loud pounding on my door and I'm like, geez, that's not like Brad to, to, to do that. You know, I opened the door and it's ginger. He's standing there looking at me and I, I had just <laughs> come out of the shower. I had no shirt on. He puts his face right up to my face and he said, they want to throw me out, talk to them. And he steps aside and behind him is the hotel manager <laughs> and, a, and a woman. And I, and uh, I, I went, can I help you? And he said, sir, uh, he's, he's disturbing the other guests and making a racket. And we want him out of the hotel. And just as he's saying this, Craig Zildjian is walking down the hall right by my room because I'm to meet Craigie in the, in the lobby in 10 minutes to go over to the venue. And she stops and says, what's going on? I said, just keep walking, keep walking. Nothing to see here. Just keep walking. <laughs> and she had this look like, what's going on? I said, Craigie, it's, it's okay. Just keep. So I pleaded with this guy to please let Ginger stay. And I said, Ginger had left at that point. I said, please, you know, we're honoring him tonight. He said, I know all about it. I said, if you can just, I'll, if I get him out of the hotel now, can he stay the night? And then we're all leaving tomorrow. And he said, fine. But, you know, so then I, I got dressed and went downstairs. I bumped into the same manager again. And he said, you know, is he gone? And I said, he's, he's not yet. I said, I'm, I'm going to meet him. And I called Ginger's room and he answered the phone, which was great because I was afraid I wouldn't be able to find him. But I said, Ginger, how about we just head over to the venue now? And we, we uh, just, we get out of the hotel. And he, he said, fine, fine. I'll, I'll see you down there. And there he was when I got down there and we drove over, we had a nice chat. And we, I brought, I put him in his dressing room and now Charlie Watts was, was there to present the award to Ginger. He agreed to do that as a favor. Um, and Charlie showed up at seven on the dot, just like he said he would. So great that he comes in in this beautiful, like white, crisp white shirt with a black suit. Immaculate. Yeah. Immaculate. He looked fantastic. And he, you know, he said hello to everybody. And I, and I kind of, I said, yeah, Ginger's in his dressing room. If you want to come say hello. And he said, yeah, let me come say hello. And, he sat with Ginger for like a half an hour and they told stories and they laughed. And Charlie at one point said to me, I should probably go say hi to Jack and Simon and all the guys. And uh, I'll see you in a little bit. So he leaves and, and Ginger turns and says, turns to me and says, 
thanks, John. Charlie's a great guy. He's a great guy. And he was like, he was better at that point. Everything was cool. And we got through the night. <laughs> and I told Charlie later, I said, you have no idea just what your, the calming presence you had on Ginger. He just, I think he was having a little disagreement with his lady friend. And it just, you know, kind of uh, escalated to him mm -hmm. getting noisy and all that stuff. But rest his soul. Ginger was a, was a, a, a great person. You know, I, he, he gets a little bit of a reputation, but. I knew him, and he was always so kind to me. Well, I think a lot of that's a great story. Thank you. I think a lot of these artists who are known to be pieces of work, shall we say, are really genuine human beings. And if you yeah. show them the right respect and you don't challenge them on things that they don't want to be challenged on, you know, yeah. I've we've all had our share of artists like that. And I always found once you got to know them, they were fine. Well said. That's exactly right. Yeah, yeah. exactly right. If you had the right respect, you know, if you knew who they were and valued what they did and, 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 and their contributions to music at large. Um, when you were producing those things, now you have a show. Plug your show. What's it called? It's called Live from My Drum Room uh, with John DeChristopher or John DeChristopher Live from My Drum Room. I forget what I ended up with is as far as the title. And uh, it's also the Modern Drummer Podcast. And uh, earlier this year, uh, my old friend, David Frangioni, who's the CEO and publisher at MD, mm -hmm. we go back, gosh, you know, a long time, both Boston guys, and he's a few years younger than me and, and used to come into Wurlitzer when I worked there. And I was like 20 and he was probably like 16 and, you know, bought equipment from me. And then years later at another shop that I worked at. So David now, of course, is running the magazine, owns the mm -hmm. magazine mm -hmm. and, uh, had been watching the show and contacted me and said, I'd love to have your show be the modern drummer podcast. So we got on the phone a couple of times and we put our heads together and came up with an agreement that uh, allows me to basically, you know, license my shows to modern drummer. Mm -hmm. um, so I still own them and uh, you know, I'm getting, uh, you know, kind of a bigger footprint you could say by MD having it, but I'm still, putting these up on my uh, YouTube channel and podcast platforms as well. So Well, excellent, and congratulations. This is something I I thought should be the way it goes for quite some time now. And I do something similar. I my Most of my action's on Facebook, so I cross-post mm -hmm. to people who allow me to do so in exchange for some spots I run on them. And that may I get, you know, let's face it, we talked about how small this thing is. I get a couple thousand yeah. hits on each one. And I try to remember how small it is and the fact that if those four people were all in the same room, it would feel like a giant crowd. <laughs> yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. And, 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 and the uh, other thing, go ahead, I'm sorry. No, I was just going to say, I, that's, that was, you know, I, I never got into this thing, you know, for the money. Right. Uh, yeah, it's just, it's just to, to just keep the message out there and keep it, keep it positive. And, yeah. When somebody like Ed Sosa says, Michael, I think your interviews belong to the Smithsonian. <laughs> that makes me feel really good. And the other 